I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior of sharp arrows, with burning coals as a broom tree. Woe to me, I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. They am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Thank you for that reading, Chris. The kids are invited to Kids Church in the Library with Kelly today. This morning we start a new sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent. Now if you were here last week, I asked people to vote whether for the penitential Psalms or the Psalms of Ascent, and it came out like 27 to nothing for <laughs> Psalms of Ascent over Psalms of Confession and Penitence, which, which says a lot about why we might need to talk about those Psalms someday. But being a man of the people as I am, I have given in and assented to the Psalms of Ascent. But I do think there's a little bit like jokes on you, because there are only seven Psalms of Ascent, whereas there are 15, or seven penitential Psalms, whereas there are 15 Psalms of Ascent. So we get 15 Sundays in the Psalms rather than uh, the seven we would have had with the penitential Psalms. But I don't think that's bugging anyone, um, because we didn't put the penitential Psalms. Um, but this Sunday is our first Sunday in sort of this, this walk of ascent, where we sort of join these pilgrim people, these people who are doing this journey of ascent in the Psalms. And as I've said, there's 15 of them. They start in 120 in your Bible, and they go to 134. And these are sort of all these Psalms that deal with this pilgrim people on the way. And so the Psalm we heard twice today, both from Hampton during the worship set and from Chris just now, is this first one of these Psalms. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But part of what I view as my, my hopeful mission for Christians is to bring back the prayers that we have in the Psalms. That for most of our lives, um, most of our Christian lives, we sort of neglect what does it mean to pray the Psalms. Which is weird, because for most of Christian history, in all of Jewish history, the, the history of the synagogue, if you wanted to learn how to pray, you would go to the book of the Psalms. You would, you would become this person who prays. Now, I was reading I read so many things on the Psalms this week, as well as on the Psalms of Ascent, but I picked up Dietrich Bonhoeffer's commentary on the Psalms. If you're familiar with him, he was a German theologian who died sort of in a concentration camp. But he's writing about the Psalms of Ascent, or the Psalms, and he says, it's weird that the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Because in 1943, and in 2019 America, we think prayer comes from the welling up of good emotions in our heart. Teach us to pray is not something many of us would think of asking. Prayer is just this spontaneous sort of good feeling towards God that you give words to. And he says that that's perhaps the wrong way to think about it. Prayer comes from being grafted into a people. And if you're being grafted into the people of God, you will look at the prayers in which they practice, which we have prayers spread out throughout the Bible, but there is only one book that is full of prayers, and that is the book of Psalms. That you would come to these Psalms and that these would be the ways in which they give you language for prayer. 
And so he recommends that we think and we start here with learning how to pray, which is the exact opposite of how we learn to pray today. But one of the people I wanted to mention, and I'm sure he'll come up a, a couple times during the sermon series, is the, is the writer Eugene Peterson, who passed away about a year and a half ago. And he's the one, if you're, if you're a Christian and you've ever heard the Message Bible, he's the one who translated the message. One of the things he talked about with praying the Psalms, and, and this is going to be my best attempt to set this up that, that uh, Lori hooked me up with today. Um, I'm sure many of you know what this is. It's a hoop for embroidery. And so I'm going to knit the sermon. No. This isn't knitting either, is it? No. I'm doing really well so far. Uh, I just asked Lori if I could do this without cursing. Um, Eugene Peterson, um, who has this great book on the Psalm of Ascents, uh, that, um, we'll go back to that quote in a second, the, that begins, it's titled Along Obedience in the Same Direction. Now, if you're familiar with Christian bookstores, they have all sorts of great titles like Jesus Calling, Me Answering, all sorts of this. And Eugene Peterson's book, which was a bestseller, was titled Along Obedience in the Same Direction. And people think that comes from the Psalms of Ascent. Only him could pull off the quote from Frederick Nietzsche, one of the world's most famous atheists of the last couple of years, for what he uses as the intro to the Psalm of Ascent. And he says, the essential thing, this is Nietzsche, in heaven and in earth, is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. That, that is the words that Eugene Peterson uses for his title, a long obedience in the same direction. There, thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. Peterson stealing from Nietzsche to say that these psalms represent a long obedience in the same direction. But one of the things he was talking about, and I'll put this, this podcast in the email this week, is he was visiting an elderly congregant during the time he was a pastor, and he was talking about prayer. And, and pastors have these things that we collect. Pastoring is teaching how do people live. And because I'm not an optimist, I'm like, no, that doesn't sound right. Uh, another theologian I like says pastoring is teaching people how to die and being a pessimist. I'm like, that sounds more right. Um, but Eugene Peterson said that pastoring is teaching people how to pray how to find themselves in relationship with God. What he said is the woman was knitting, or sewing, and embroidering, cross-stitching, embroidering, when he was talking to her, as he visited her, and she said, I need something like this. I need something, a structure to give life to my prayers. My, my spiritual life, just on my own, is like a cloth with no shape to it. It has no sorts of meaning. It's just sort of floating around. And so she was like, I need a hoop, uh, something to stretch the, the fabric of my life out so that I can find myself in prayer. I'm going to get it. Um, and so he says, I have something exactly for that. He says that he leaves and then he comes back a week later as he visits her, get it, um, and gives her a copy of the Psalms. And he says the Psalms are this thing, this hoop, that they don't take over your life. They're not meant to take away from who you are, but they provide this space for you to find your language for your prayer life in there. And Peterson, as he talks about this journey of the Psalms, of teaching people to pray the Psalms, is he says that people are amazed because when they get them, after they begin praying and that they listen to him, um, as a pastor, I'm like, they just listen to you. Um, but uh, that's a pastor's joke. Um, they don't go over well with congregants because they're like, we listen to you sometimes when it's good advice. Um, but as they pray the Psalms, 
um, they find out that they say, can I really speak this way to God? The Psalms contain anger at God. The Psalms contain frustration at God. The Psalms proclaim uh, enemy, enemies and people against the psalmists often. They bring together the joys of life, the sadness of life, the pains of life, the desperation of life, and all the low moments. People who are unfamiliar with the Psalter think we are full of this holy, nice language towards God, but that's not the way the Psalms are. The one we know the best, Psalm 23, most of us, is the Psalm that says, contains both that my cup overflows in the presence of my enemies, which we don't think about enough, and one of the darkest lines that though I'm in the valley of the shadow of the uh, though I'm in the valley of the shadow of death contains these sayings, even these ones we've sort of instrumentalized to be quaint in our lives, are dark in ways we just forget about it. And so they ask, can I really talk to God this way? Is this really and he says that's why i gave you the psalms is so that you can find the language for god in your own life and so this is martin luther who i don't know how he had friends but he said whoever begins to pray the psalms earnestly and regularly will soon take leave of those other light and personal little devotional prayers quite a statement and say ah there is not the juice the strength the passion the fire which you find in the psalms anything else tastes too cold and too hard and so my first plea as we start these Psalms of Ascent is to bring back into our lives the praying of the Psalter, taking them into our lives and using that language as we say to the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray, as we find sort of drawing this thing into our lives of God, coming into us and, and sort of giving birth to language in which we've had before and have long forgotten. And so that brings us to Psalm 120 and the Psalms of Ascent. This is my artistic rendition of ascent. David, B? A plus. A plus. Uh, if you resided in the area surrounding Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem, which is what are we ascending to in these psalms in the historical meaning, these are pilgrim songs on the people's way to Jerusalem. And if you were in that area, Jerusalem is up. You would spend almost all your time going up, which is why they're called the Psalms of Ascent. But language is a funny thing because there's also this ascent in which we're taking up into the divine. This is the city in which God dwells. The temple is there. We're ascending in some sense in our hearts. And St. Augustine, another old voice from the 400 AD-ish, um, talks about how the ascent is something that we undergo in ourselves as well. You don't just physically move from the bottom to the top but that you sort of bring your heart along in this ascent into going towards God, of moving towards this place. And so we move in this ascent towards this place. And these are these psalms that sort of call out this way of moving and going further and further upward and into God. I was thinking about a phrase um, as I was thinking about becoming a pilgrim people. One of the first things is that we as Christians we as the church move from a people who are lost to a people on a journey. There's a place we're going. There's something on our direction. There's a way to life. We move from sort of just being blown about, but we're drawn into something. We, we, we move from sort of tourists of the divine or tourists of transcendence, if you want to think about it, to sort of pilgrims. We're going someplace. These are the songs of our pilgrimage to this place. A sort of union with the divine, but in this 
this section of the Psalter moving to the holy city, which is how the book of Revelation ends with the holy city. This is the place in which to we are moving. But I'm generally skeptical of lines you find embroidered, even if they're scripture. I don't know why that is. Um, it just is like, if you can cross-stitch it, um, it seems like it loses some of its power. Uh, I have a friend who has cross-stitched on their wall, um, Merry Christmas, you filthy animals, which is a line from uh, Home Alone, right? Yes, Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. And uh, I think it, it doesn't bring true the same way it does as if, if you see it cross-stitched. But there's one in which you see a lot in social media today, which is that not all who wander are lost, which is a line from the Lord of the Rings, the, the great tale by, is it Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit? The Hobbit. So Tolkien's sort of story about this place in Middle Earth. But there's this idea in which we look like wanderers too. But you call out that not all who wander are lost. That we're being led someplace, that we're being brought to someplace, that that this that saying, like most sayings that end up cross-stitch, still have some truth to them. Um, and we sort of move into this place of this psalms of ascent of this going someplace. And of these psalms, and this is Luther again, much kinder this time around, not calling all your prayers little and desperate, he says that these psalms deal with the most important teaching most of all the articles of the Christian faith, of preaching, forgiveness of sin, the cross, love, marriage, authorities, so that they set forth, as it were, a summary of all the essential teachings. This is Luther's sort of intro to his lectures on the psalms of ascent. And what he sees in them, as I was reading commentators this week, the psalms of ascent are amazing because they do actually sort of deal with the things of daily life. It's as, almost as if the person is leaving behind whatever town they might reside in outside of Jerusalem, and they begin their pilgrimage towards the Holy City, that they're drawing up all their concerns along the way. It's not like they leave them behind, but almost like they're bringing them, as they get closer and closer to where God is and to where God resides, they're bringing their concerns along with them to that place. Because in that place is where the peace and justice and holiness and goodness is. And that's where they sort of head out towards in these psalms. Which brings us to the third and sort of final movement of today's psalm, is talking about the psalm in front of us, Psalm 120. There was, if you listened to it, there's some weird stuff in Psalm 120 as it starts this pilgrim thing. First it starts with this, and this is where Bible translation gets hard, but there's, it starts with almost that my prayer has been answered. I've called the Lord in my distress, and he heard me. The, the tense there is weird. It can be transferred. I'm asking for an answered prayer, or he has answered prayer, and it seems like most people prefer that God has answered prayer. This is a person who already has had answered prayer, and as they set out on this journey, they go to this place. And so the first word of this psalm is sort of, Lord, I'm in distress, and he answered me. And the last word of this psalm is war. Which means that there's a lot going on in these short uh, eight verses, seven verses, um, that we sort of need to sort of dive into and look at. But this person is one who sets off with the words that, Lord, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me, Lord. He continues, save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. This is the challenge of this psalm here, is that there are lying lips and deceitful tongues. 
And I was thinking that this is a common theme in the Psalms, is that when words lose meaning, when you can't don't speak the truth, things begin to fall apart and dissipate. But I think it's true in our world, too, is that most of us don't like being lied to, right? That's not a shocker. But there's something about, like, real <coughs> lies, like lies that sort of tear walls down, that make, make you into the fool and sort of show what you believed in as false. Those hurt the most. I mean, we get little lies along the way. Yeah, I took the garbage out. Yeah, I remembered your birthday. No, I stopped on the way home and picked up your card. We get those, but there are lies that sort of can re-alter the shape of the world. And when language fails, when, when the goodness of truth fails in that way, there's something about that. And even more so, if you think about this pilgrim leaving a small community, leaving a small place, and, and this is if you've been a part of a small school class or a small trip, when lies begin to take shape and deceitfulness begins to take root, it almost as if it poisons and kills the whole thing. But even more so, if we, we consider lies, is that this is what starts a journey, too. In fact, I think it's often what maybe starts the Christian journey, is that you begin to look at the world, um, if you watch the ads that will be on TV today during the football games, if you begin to sort of look at the world, and, and or if you listen to politicians, and by this I mean any of them, um, and you begin to see that a lot of what people are selling us and telling us are lies. You begin to think about the character of what a body is, of what a person is, and then you look at the way in which it's sexualized in society, you go, that seems like a lie, too. There's something holy in that person. It doesn't come to you right away, but as you grow, and you have a tendency to grow numb to these lies, because the lies are so often so wide in our world. There's lies almost everywhere, it seems like. And so for this psalmist, as it is for us, I think, in some ways, is once the disillusionment with lies is something that can begin a journey, it can set you out. One I often think about with health is that, is that when things are fine, we generally don't seek out and begin this journey. But when some health fails in your life or a loved one's life or somebody nears to it, you begin to think that the social contract that I will live forever and die in my sleep peacefully is somehow broken. And that lie of all lies sets people sometimes on a journey into what is the truth. How do I walk this way towards this thing? And so for Christians, the word we have for this is metanoia, which is the Greek word for repentance. Repentance is a, is a funny word, the metanoia word, is because it sort of means a U-turn. And the way that we often use repentance in the church is like, do you feel sorry for what you've done? Do you feel bad about what you did? But, but then repentance becomes somewhat of a feeling, which is not what it is at all. Repentance is this decision that gets you moving. It's to say that in a world of lies, I'm going to start to move. Repentance isn't this like, well, I feel bad about that. That might be an English way of interpreting it. But if metanoia is a U-turn, and we talked about this when we picked defiance as our name, too, is that it means to turn in the world, that all of the world is going this way, and you awaken yourself into the lies, and you decide, I'm going to set myself for this journey, for the truth. To go to this place, the journey on this ascent, the word that, that we thought was a good way to capture that is the word of defiance, because that's what you look like in the world. And we see that that's actually sort of where the psalm ends up. So put a pin in that, because that, that I actually come back. 
Um, and so this is the world of lies that this person is sort of drowning on that sets them on this journey. They see this in the world. And so then rhetorically, funny enough, the, the psalmist asks, what will be done to these people? Or how would you judge these people? And he says, you'll punish them with the warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush, is what he says. This is, this is how God will deal with those with the deceitful tongue. Uh, this is an arrow curving around. Sometimes I feel like I have to explain my heart because it's a little too abstract in my, my drawing. But um, there's two ways of interpreting this passage. Both, I think, are wonderful. The first is, is that in the Psalms, lying and the cheap use of words and deceit are often uh, turned out to be a sword or an arrow or a weapon. And so the first way of sort of interpreting this passage is that these people get what they've turned back onto themselves. This is, in some sense, getting what you've earned through using words cheaply. Now, this is, I didn't think about this until sometimes they come to you in a moment, but the Lord of the Rings has this classic sort of way in which evil falls upon itself. You can't actually build trust in evil systems. So in a world of lies, if you're all lying, when it comes together to say, okay, we finally destroyed whoever was our problem, but we're all liars, let's work together to build something good. It never works because your character and what you've been bound around is lying. How is anybody ever going to trust you in that place? The first season of Survivor didn't quite have this, but the later seasons of Survivor were all deception and lies, so much that you never believed anyone. Um, and as it went further and further on, it was almost like a game of how much you could lie rather than how you could survive. That was, um, it's fascinating human nature in that way. And so what the psalmist says is, what will these people get? These people will get exactly the world they've created for being sheep with words in this way. The second way of interpreting it comes from St. Augustine and has been used by others since then, in which that God aims at which he loves. The arrows and the coals of the Lord are meant to bring about repentance. They're meant to shatter the world of lies and start you on this journey as well. They're the prodding that gets you going in some sense. And we, did, we sort of looked at the lies in the previous passage. That's sort of what they do for us. And so the next thing that the psalmist says is that it might be as if I resided in these far-off places, um, Mezek and Kedar. The, this is the pilgrimage, right? This is this person leaving this place to go towards Jerusalem. They're leaving a place of lies. That's why this one opens the psalm of ascent. But it's more likely because one of these places is like here in the ancient Near East, and the other is like way on the other side in the east. Like they're not, the psalmist is not literally talking about where he leaves to go to this place. He's metaphorically talking about places that are obsessed with war and violence as this is if I, where I live my life. See, this is part of the struggle, I think, as we sort of try to bring the psalms into our lives to pray them, is the language is like, well, I don't reside in those places. And what the psalmist is saying is, look in your backyard, look in what surrounds you with addiction and depression and angst, look at the ways in which people turn on each other, um, spend a day down at the county courthouse, um, sit in Starbucks for four hours and listen to the conversations around you, which is something pastors do, we confess. Um, and you find out that this is so close to you. It's a metaphorically true thing. The, the best example I had for this was uh, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition 
And to explain that reference is way too hard. That's a Monty Python thing. So if you get it, you should laugh a little. Did anybody get it? Does anybody know that reference? Yeah. No, he expects the Spanish Inquisition, and then they pop up and they're in Spanish. Anyways. Um, but that's the thing is that like this is a way of using language to say that nobody expects these places. But this is where violence is near to us. It feels as if we reside in these in these places. And, and it names in a proper way our lives as a foreign existence. It names in a way um, the ways in which our lives are sort of beginning on this pilgrimage in which we go. So the last sort of line says that these people hate war. They're for war, they hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, and we talked about it last week if you're here, but this is a person who proclaims, I'm for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. Now this part is fascinating to me. What was the thing we put a pin in? Um, to, to set out for truth, people will set against you. Like To say that I'm for peace, to be for something, actually begins to change something. Defiance is our name. That's what it was. It's that to say this, it is defiance. To say that now I'm for shalom, the world will turn against you. What's fascinating about this, and one of the most interesting things, I think, in, in many of our lives, if you begin to say that you're a person who believes that the gospel calls us to live peaceably in the world, to live non-violently, to live as a pacifist, whatever language you want to be used for it, it's fascinating. People will come back to you like, okay, but what if somebody was in your house and about to shoot your grandma? It's like, so I said I'm for peace, and your best example back to me is about violence intimately near me to stir me towards towards not being a person towards peace. I mean, and this is, I, I, I hesitate to say it only happens with Christians when you say this, but it definitely happens with Christians when you say this. Like, if you say, hey, I think part of our call as disciples of Jesus Christ is to not participate in murder and war as best as we can or not anymore, the first thing most people respond with is like, what if something horrible is happening to a family member? What would you do then? And it's like, how is that in any way rational? Like, how does that make any sense? And, 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 and because most of us, we handle it like, well, that seems like a fair question, which it might be a fair question, but it's like totally a horrible thing to do. Um, it's not like saying, yes, let's work together for peace. It's like, let's find out how you can be for war. And this, I pick on, on this here, but, I, but what I would say is that this exaggerated form of this is more true in other realms of our life too. You walk into a place of conflict, whether it be your place of work, whether it be your family, whether it be this, and you say, hey, I'm coming here to aim for peace. It only takes like three words later until somebody's trying to draw you onto the side of war. There will be no peace there. I am for peace, um, uh, I am for peace, but, but they are for war. And this is how we find in our lives that that's the way it goes. Is that if we proclaim that we're this person for peace, it's only that we, we become skeptical too. And to, so to proclaim peace in some ways is to instantly invite yourself into battles, is what the psalmist truthfully proclaims for us. There is no way of saying, I'm for peace, in which you're not engaged then in battles afterwards. And the question is of how following this God. This person, the one who calls us to pick up our cross and die, 
movement this way in the world. How you will respond in those places is a difficult question. But to begin to define yourself for peace is to only find yourself near to those who want to go to war. And this word shalom, as we talked about last week, is a peace beyond the absence of conflict, too. This is the quote we, we used last week, but I still think it's a strong definition of what shalom is. Shalom is the peace which alone reconciles and strengthens, which calms us and clears our vision, which frees us from restlessness and from bondage of unsatisfied desire, the bondage of unsatisfied desire, which gives us the consciousness of attainment, the consciousness of permanence, even amidst the transitoriness of ourselves and our outward things. To begin this journey of ascent is to walk the path towards this God who calls forth peace and shalom. The book of Ephesians, which we heard earlier, that encouraged us to speak to one another in Psalms as, did it say as the days are evil? That's a line in Ephesians. I can't remember if it's right near there. Is to earn, turn back to these psalms to find language for these times that are hard and dark. Also proclaims that Christ is our peace. It's not a peace that we can attain just by ourselves. But it's one that we constantly turn and look to the interruption that God is in our lives. And sets us on this path. The psalms of ascent aren't just one where you get there and you arrive and everything's fine. But it's a journey and a call for us to be a people who is a pilgrim people in the world, following this God, where this God will take us through battlefields, through wars, through lies, and ultimately bring us to peace. Let us pray. God, like the psalmist, we exist in a world of lies. So we pray that you may set us on this journey. We bring our faces and our lives and our hearts to this ascent to where you are. But as the psalmist names for us, this is no easy escape in the world. To be for Christ, who is our peace. To be for God's peace. It's to find yourself in the midst of trial and conflict. So God, we pray that you would be here with us as we start this journey. We pray that you would be with us as we pray these psalms and other psalms, this language in which you have given us to talk to. We pray that we may be those who set out to ascend to the holy place, and say, we are for peace. But when I speak, we may be confronted with war. I ask all this in your holy name. Amen.